So we're going to do a quick recap of the last five weeks. Uh, if you've missed any of the messages, you can check those out online. Uh, first, we learned that desire is not demonic. It's actually divine. That God placed inside of us this desire to be intimate, to be sexual people. And that is not demonic. That is divine. That's from God. We learned that God always gives boundaries before the blessing. That when he put Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, don't touch that tree. You can touch the rest of them. And then he gave Adam his wife Eve. There's always a boundary before he gives the blessing. We learned that shame is not the solution. The solution is not to just pour a bunch of cold water on that fire inside of us that we have of this desire. And too often the church has done that. We've just said, oh, put those feelings aside, you know, turn them off. Sex is dirty. Sex is gross. That shame is not the solution. Shame is often part of the problem. And so we're not going to be here promoting shame. We're going to promote grace. Amen. Uh, We talked about preparation always precedes your purpose. Whatever season you find yourself in life, And we talked how they were in a winter season, and then spring comes. And out of the darkness and the coldness of winter, which we've now entered into, seeds are at work. And always after a season of winter, spring will come. So if today you find yourself in that season of darkness and waiting, and it feels cold, and and you're waiting for that harvest, that's good. Because out of that is going to come a season of, of, of blessing, and that preparation always precedes your purpose. We talked that purity paves the way to intimacy. If you are currently not married, that you want to pursue purity, because that's going to pave the way to intimacy. And in our marriages, we want to pursue purity so that that makes us more uh, easy to be intimate with our spouses. And oftentimes in our marriages, there's these things that come in like the little foxes. We talked about we got to get rid of the foxes, how these foxes would come into the vineyards and they dig up the roots. And too often in our lives, we let these little things creep in that will affect our roots and will ruin our relationships. And so we need to deal with things that seem little, like pornography, like debt, like a harsh spirit, um, anything that might be in your life, in your relationship, that can come in and destroy the roots. We need to deal with those. We, we learn that almost everything our culture is saying about sex is not only dangerous, it's destructive. Too often our culture says sex is nothing— it's just some biological thing two people do. Or sex is God. It's the most important thing ever. I said, no, actually, God is God. And sex is a blessing, but it's also a bridge to God. That, that feeling we have after sex of wanting something more that leaves us, that emptiness is actually designed to point us towards God, who's the only one who can fulfill all our perfect desires for intimacy. We learned that passion is important, but approach also matters. And guys, how do we pursue our spouses? Women, how do you pursue your husbands? We learned that you are your spouse's only legitimate outlet to meet your sexual needs. We have a lot of different needs in our life. We have emotional needs that we can, we can fulfill those in a lot of different ways. We can go up to the boundary waters. We can go for a great walk. We can have coffee with our friend. You know, we have different spiritual needs. You can go to a different church. You can do different Bible studies. Listen to KTS radio, whatever it might be. But you are your spouse's only legitimate outlet to meet their sexual needs. Uh, We learned that sex is a blessing from God. It's also a bridge to God. Uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about how are we going to respond to conflict, that in every relationship, conflict is going to happen. So we made these promises. We said, number one, whether this is just conflict with your spouse or conflict in life, this is how we're going to respond. Number one, I'm going to act by the Spirit. I'm not just going to react to my flesh. I'm going to choose to let the Holy Spirit act through me instead of just responding in my flesh. Number two, I'm going to focus on the good and not on the bad. When I'm dealing with someone, I'm going to focus on the good things, not the bad. And number three, I'm going to talk and not just walk out the door, guys. I'm going to talk and not just walk out the door. See ya. 
Uh, and we talked to them last week how your friends will determine the quality and direction of your life. Your friends will determine whether you sit in church or you leave. Your friends can determine the quality and direction of your life. Uh, here's my desire for you as your pastor. I want you to experience new life and peace that is found only in Jesus. I want you to be healed from past hurts and shame and find freedom from your addictions. I want you to have deep friendships with others in this church who can both encourage you and also hold you accountable to help you grow spiritually. I want you to live debt-free so you can experience the joy that comes from being able to bless others and that's found in living a generous life. And for all the married couples in the church, I want you all to have the best marriages you could possibly imagine. And that's why we spent the last six weeks looking at the book of Song of Solomon. We've talked about how to have a great God-honoring sex life. We've talked about how to deal with conflict, how to get rid of the little foxes that so easily come in and ruin our relationships. Today, I want to talk about building a love that lasts as we wrap up this series and how to leave a legacy for our children and our children's children. Because what we do will echo through eternity. I love that line from the movie Gladiator, that what we do doesn't just affect us, what we do here in this moment, what we do here the rest of this month and the rest of this year will affect your children if you have kids and your grandchildren. Your life will affect so many other people. And you and I have a choice to say, I'm going to pursue God's wisdom and, and do what he wants for my life so that I follow after what God wants for our lives. We're going to have a negative impact on those around us. We have a choice. How are we going to respond to the generations that have gone before us Maybe your parents are getting older, and, and are you going to pursue that relationship and, and, and maybe mend any fences that have been broken? You have a, and I can choose how we're going to respond to our kids, how we're going to invest in them and not have our minds and our hearts solely on ourselves. So that's why it's important to learn how do we leave a legacy? How are we investing in other people? A couple years ago, I saw a movie that uh, really wrecked me. It was an Adam Sandler movie, but it was really sad. Anyone see the movie Click? It wasn't a great movie, but it was really sad. Basically, uh, Adam Sandler's character walks into a bed, bath, and beyond, and he discovers the beyond section. His wife's shopping, and he, and he gets this uh, universal remote control that can control his whole life. And so he starts fast-forwarding through the parts of his life that he doesn't enjoy. So he can just live out the parts that he wants. And at first he thinks this is an amazing blessing. But then the remote is smart. And so it starts just jumping ahead in his life. And before he knows it, he's at the end of his life looking back at the choices that he made and realizing that he spent way too much time on his own uh, career, on himself, that he neglected a relationship with his father, he neglected a relationship with his son. And I want to play a little clip from that, a clip from the movie Click, uh, it's hard to say, uh, just to set this up. And so he's got his universal remote, and uh, he finds out towards the end that he was not there when his father passed away. And so he can't go back to that scene. So he tells the remote, take me back to the last time I saw my father. So go ahead and check out this clip. Hey, Dad. Sorry to uh, bug you. Would you mind looking at my, uh, my shopping mall design again? This one is cheaper, but... If you check this out, you'll see it has Whoa. a much better natural flow. Cheaper one. Like I said, I just let me do my email. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Dad. Um, he ain't right. You're a schmuck. Better. Look at it. Surprise. 
Hey, Grandpa. Oh my God. <laughs> when did you get so handsome? So, Michael, I had a wonderful idea. Your mother's playing canasta with her friends tonight. I thought, oh, what a great opportunity. You, me, and Ben should go and have a boys' night out. Can't. What do you mean you can't? You have to eat sometime. We could go, we could whistle at pretty girls. <laughs> I'm down for that. See, he's down. I don't know what it means, but he's down. <laughs> hey, please. Don't give me that finger. I'll make you a deal. If you come, I'll show you the quarter trick. Will you look at the man? I'll tell you the secret. No, Dad. Don't you want to know how you do the stupid trick? I've always known. Can you let me do my work? You've always known. You're pathetic. I love you too, Dad. I'll miss you. You know that. Goodbye. Have a choice. How are we going to respond? We all have a limited amount of time in our life. We don't know when the last time we see someone is going to be the last time we see someone. And so my desire for you is that we choose to live with intention and purpose to say, I'm going to have a love that lasts. I'm going to leave a legacy. I'm going to invest in the generation that's gone before me. I'm going to invest in the generation that's to come. Well, here at the end of the song, Solomon chapter 8, we get to the climax of our story, and it's going to give us the closest thing to a definition of love that our song has given us so far. Song Solomon 8, verse 5, it says, Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? We talk about this, we have uh, three main groups of people. We have uh, the beloved, which is the husband, we have the bride, and then we have her bridesmaids' friends who kind of sing. And so her leading ladies, are her friends, her bridesmaids, are singing about the married couple. They're coming out of the wilderness. They're coming home. Maybe right now you feel like you're in the wilderness. Maybe God is calling you come into back to home. So our couple, they're moving now into the house that her husband grew up in. And as they pull up to their, their new house that he grew up in, she's leaning on her husband. 
So the first thing we learn is that bench seats are more biblical than bucket seats because they allow you the ability to snuggle. So bench seats are more biblical than bucket seats. Uh, Actually, sitting side by side is one of the best ways for guys to communicate. A road trip sometimes is the only time a man's going to sit still long enough to communicate. And they can't stare at their phone or the TV. Uh, Guys are just more comfortable uh, connecting and talking side by side, usually because that means we don't have to look you in the eye. Uh, Sorry, ladies, that's just the way guys are wired. That's how God made us. That's why bars are so popular with men. Guys can sit side by side, stare straight ahead, and connect. That's why guys like to fish side by side. They can connect, but they're not looking at each other. That's why, like, if a guy's in his truck and another guy comes up next to him, like, they can talk and have, like, a long conversation because they're both kind of looking straight ahead. Like, guys prefer to connect side by side than face to face. Uh, and same with, so ladies, if you're ever in trouble connecting with your husband, try to go on a long road trip with him, doing something where you can sit side by side, and he might end up opening up more. Same with parents of teenagers. If you have a teenage son, I want to encourage you, find something you can do where you can sit side by side with your teenage son and watch him open up. Uh, like if you're going to go someplace, I, I know a dad who uh, every year would take his teenage son fishing, and he purposely picked a location that wasn't the closest uh, they could go fishing, but it was an hour or two away. Because after about 30 minutes, then his son started opening up and connecting more, sitting side by side with him. So I encourage you, if you are having trouble connecting with your son or your husband, try side by side. Uh, that's just the way God wired us up to be. Uh, well, back to our couple sitting on their biblical bench seats. Uh, the first big idea here, if you are taking notes, you can write this down, is that love is learning how to lean. Love is learning how to lean. Love is learning how to lean. I love this quote from Ashley Willis. She and her husband run some uh, uh, Christian blogs on marriage. They've written some books. They're speakers. And she says this. She says, A strong marriage rarely has two strong people at the same time. It is a husband and wife who take turns being strong for each other in the moments when the other feels weak. It's just the truth that sometimes one is strong and then the other one will be strong. Love is learning how to lean on each other. Now, uh, when we're studying this, some scholars think that perhaps the, our couple is now an older couple uh, later in life and they're reminiscing about old times a- a- together. Other scholars think this is maybe them returning from their honeymoon. The great thing about poetry is that our poet doesn't lay it all out for us. Uh, our couples could be newlyweds. They could be uh, later in life, married a couple decades. I think what's great about that is that we can then identify with these couples wherever we find ourselves. And what matters isn't how long they've loved each other, but the image of love that is shown here. It doesn't matter how long they've been married, it's the image of love that's shown here. And the image we see is the wife leaning on her husband. Well, what's so significant about that, Eric, you might ask? Well, we've read some pretty wild and crazy stuff these last few weeks studying uh, Song of Solomon. We've read descriptions of the husband climbing his wife like a palm tree and of him approaching his wife's breasts like twin fawns. We've read about the wife drinking in her husband's kisses like fine wine and inviting her husband to come into her garden and taste her choicest fruits. This is all in the Bible. But here the image is not erotic, it's affectionate. Picture the wife with her head on the side of her husband's chest while he has his arm around her. It's a sign of affection, closeness, security, and also a sign of dependence. If you grew up in the church, uh, maybe you were raised in the church or a more traditional church, you might think of the lyrics to that old gospel song, leaning on the everlasting arms, leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Or 
we just celebrated communion. You might think of the Last Supper. And the book of John tells us that John, the disciple who nicknamed himself the one that Jesus loved, which I love that's the nickname for himself, it tells us that he was leaning on Jesus' chest. John 13. And this is so remarkable to me, this image of the last night John, the disciple, is leaning on Jesus' chest because for three years he has seen Jesus' power. He has seen Jesus heal sick people, open the eyes of the blind. He's seen Jesus walk on water and raise the dead. He's also heard Jesus' amazing teaching and thundering judgments on religious people. He's seen him fashion a whip and kick people out of the temple. Yet, John still finds Jesus so loving and so lovable that he leans upon him. What a sign of affection and dependence. And that's the way Christians are to lean on Jesus. In spite of a God who's amazing and powerful and holy beyond us, he invites us to lean on him. It's a similar way that the Bible encourages a wife to lean on her husband's. So husbands, here's my question for you and for me. Are you lovably leanable? As a pastor, I've yet to hear a Christian wife complain about leaning on her husband who they respect and who's easy to submit to because he lovingly leads like Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, verse 23 through 24, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay. Now, I know we talked about this a little bit before in the past, but this whole talk of submission in the 21st century, I know, feels so old-fashioned to so many people. But please stick with me here. Don't just, like, get all up in a roar, like, oh, we're, we're anti that. Okay. I want us to note the language that the Bible uses, though, here is the Apostle Paul says the husband is the head, not he ought to be. It's simply a statement of fact. He's not giving a suggestion. He's not even giving a command to married couples. Husbands, whether we like it or not, we are in a position of inescapable leadership. Husbands, we are in a position of leadership, and how we lead is up to us. We can lead our families poorly, like Adam Sandler's character, by not serving, not sacrificing, not leading the way spiritually, or we can choose to lead like Christ by serving our family like Christ served the church. We can choose to use our leadership as a model of sacrifice to our children. We can choose to protect our family like Jesus the good shepherd protects his church. And the husband who leads like Christ, who sacrifices like Christ, who loves like Christ, will often find his wife's fair head leaning upon his chest as she gladly submits to his loving leadership. But just because the husband is the head of the family, what Paul says here, doesn't mean there won't be times that he needs to lean on his wife. There'll be times that the husband will need to lean on his wife. Here's what Proverbs 31, 10 through 12 says. An excellent wife, who can find? She's more precious, far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. The heart of her husband trusts in her. Wives, there are times when your husband is going to need to lean on you for strength, for comfort, for closeness. He has trusted you with his heart. He is trusting that you will take good care of his heart. 
want to say one more thing about the fact that God has called husbands to lead. It does not mean that we don't take into account the feelings and the opinions of our wife, okay? We need to be influenced by each other. We are equals under Christ. But we've been positioned men as a position of leadership, and we set the tone. We can lead like Christ with courage, with sacrifice, with loving like Jesus did, that he laid down his life for the church, and that's how we laid down our lives for our families. Or we set the tone by, by not leading, by just being passive. We want to reject passivity and accept responsibility. Amen? Love is learning how to lean on each other. Remember, uh, do, you guys, do you guys remember dating? Maybe some of you guys are dating right now. Do you remember how painful dating could be in middle school, junior high, and high school? Maybe even college? Uh, nobody else? Okay, just me? Okay. Do you ever hear that killer phrase that no one ever wants to hear? Let's be friends, right? Or I know maybe ladies, you've heard this one. You know what? I think you'd be just like my brother. Or guys like, oh, or just like my sister. You know, and then the guys like, the lady's like, oh, you're just like a brother to me. What's the translation there? We're never going to date, right? That's what that means. But what, what if we said those statements actually, though, after we were married? What if we tried to really develop a friendship with our spouse? What if we said, hey, can we be friends to our spouse? What impact would it have on our marital satisfaction and the divorce rate in general? Before we leave this image of the wife leaning on her husband, notice that the image here is non-sexual. The surprising thing about this is because so much of the Song of Solomon has quite frankly been pretty erotic. But here, at the climax of the whole Song of Solomon, there's no climaxing, if you know what I mean. This is the opposite of modern romantic movies where the movie builds to the bedroom scene. Here we get a picture of mature intimacy, one that teaches that the climax of love is not sex, but it's friendship. As the wife said to her husband, about her husband chapter 5, this is my beloved, my friend. In fact, she states she wishes her husband was like a brother to her. Song of Solomon 8, verse 1, she says, Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. She wants that closeness with her husband like she has with her brother. Here's how the great writer C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, he wrote of his marriage to his wife, Joy, who he married late in life. He says uh, about their marriage, It's mere easy and ordinariness. No need to talk. No need to make love. No needs at all except to perhaps stir the fire. This image of them just sitting in front of the fire, just being together. And then this is what he wrote. After his wife, Joy, passed away from cancer, after only being married for four years, he said what he missed most after she died was the tiny, heartbreaking, commonplace. They had a deep, abiding friendship closeness. See, friendship fuels the flame of romance. Love is building a strong friendship. This following, following story about the necessity of friendship uh, found in the book, The Most Important Year in a Man's Life, What Every Groom Needs to Know. It says, Scott and Monica fell in love in college. Scott had come from a long line of thoughtful and contemplative people. No need for small talk was spot welded to his DNA. Monica was warm and outgoing. It didn't take long after their wedding for those two qualities to meet nose-to-nose. -nose. In fact, Monica had a sinking feeling on their honeymoon. 
Scott's emotionless two or three word answers to her questions gripped her with a strange sense of loneliness. 25 years of marriage and four children later, Scott called his friend to announce, Monica's leaving me today. The kids had graduated, so Monica decided to move to another city and take up with an old high school flame. A man who liked to talk to her, a man who she thought would be her friend and her flame. It wasn't that Scott was an evil man, he just never talked to his wife. He didn't pursue a friendship with Monica. The result, she pursued friendship and a relationship elsewhere. Scott and Monica's stories replayed in varying versions all across America. Dr. John Gottman has done some amazing research on uh, couples and on marriage out in the University of Washington. And uh, he has what's called a love lab, which sounds weird, but it's like this apartment, and they have uh, microphones and cameras everywhere except for the bathroom and the bedroom. And they invite couples to come in for the weekend and observe them and how they interact. And he's been doing this for decades, and he knows now there are certain marriage killers, certain phrases, certain things that couples do, and he can identify with a 91% uh, rate of accuracy whether a couple is going to uh, stick it out and be married for the long haul or whether they're going to get divorced. 91% accuracy on observing a couple for a weekend and how they interact with each other. And what, what has he learned from years of observing couples? He has learned there are certain marriage-protecting things and marriage-destroying habits. And what he discovered was that by far, the most significant marriage protector is friendship. Gottman says, The determining factor in whether most wives feel satisfied in their marriage is the quality of the couple's friendship. For most men, the determining factor is the same. So men and women come from the same planet after all. little dig on men from Mars. Friendship fuels the flames of romance because it offers the best protection against feeling adversarial towards your spouse. It sounds so simple. Just be friends with your spouse. It makes you wonder why more people don't work at building a friendship with their spouse. I mean, we've all made friends before, hopefully. You know, sit side by side, listen, lean on each other, help each other, speak kindly, have fun together. I want you to try that this week if you are married. Work on building a friendship with your spouse. Have an actual plan. What are you going to do this week to build your friendship? I know, once you start having kids, it can be so easy just to be roommates side by side, handing off the kids, doing responsibilities, just paying the bills together. And your friendship can so easily go by the wayside. How are you going to work on building your friendship this week with your spouse? Friendship fuels the flame of romance. Now, that doesn't mean that sex and romance don't matter. Sheila Gregor, she has a great blog. If you want to, if you want to uh, follow her blog, it's called To Love, Honor, and Vacuum, which I think is a great title. Uh, and just this week, I was working on this message, and uh, her, her blog came across um, my email, and it's called Sex and Friendship. Are they the chicken or the egg in marriage? And she talks, like, which one comes first? You know, sometimes people talk, you need to build your friendship, and that'll help your sex life. No, you need to build your sex life first, and then your friendship. What she says is they're actually interconnected. They're both super important. She says, ideally, in marriage, sex and friendship form a loop that feed each other. She says, what are you feeding? She goes on to say, there is this presumption at times that the sex life will fall into place once husbands and wives improve their relationship. Friendship, in this line of thinking, trumps sex. Or that relationship must precede improvement in the bedroom. Yet my own marriage story is that our Quality physical intimacy helped us weather our relationship difficulties, hang in there, and work things out. She says, a reader of my blog recently told her story to this effect, sharing that she and her husband tackled the sex area of their marriage first, talking honestly and making that a priority. 
Then she said, the funny thing is, when that area of our life returned to what I believe God intended to be, everything else in our marriage came together as well. We communicate better, we laugh more, and talk more openly. Sex matters, and God created sex for men and women. So both sex and friendship matter in the matter of love. They're the chicken and the egg. They feed on one another. And one of the ways you can work on your friendship with your spouse is by having more sex. So there's your homework this week. Number three, we've learned love is learning how to lean. Love is building a strong friendship. And love is bigger than just us two. Song of Solomon 8, verse 5. She's speaking. She says, Under the apple tree I, I awakened you. There, a love awakened. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. The same place their love was born was the same place where the husband was physically born. And now they're settling in and calling home. We don't know if mom is alive or not. But we do know that family matters in the matter of love. And that love is bigger than just us two. The bride's mother is mentioned at least three times in Song of Solomon, chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 8. And she's described as the bride's teacher. Uh, verse 2 through 3, she says, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. What did the bride's mother teach her? All about God and his wisdom? Probably. But she's also probably taught in the language of what Proverbs thirty nineteen says, the way of a ship on the high seas and the way of a man with a virgin. That is, her mother taught her the art of lovemaking. That's likely what our leading lady in our musical here is saying in 8-2. All right, now I understand this is kind of a weird concept to us today, a mother teaching her daughter about sexual intimacy. And it's like, what are you talking about? But think of it this way. Who would you prefer your daughter to learn the art of lovemaking from? Her mother who cares deeply for her and has years of experience? Or the girls in her college dorm room who haven't been with a man long enough to know what really pleases a man? I know this is a strange topic, and I wouldn't be talking about it if mothers weren't talked about in chapter 8, but they are, and so here we are, and this is why we preach through books of the Bible. So I have to cover awkward topics like this, all right? <laughs> it's good. It's good for me. So here's my word to moms, especially of daughters. Teach your daughters about these touchy subjects that hang over their heads. Teach your daughters what it feels like to lose your virginity and what it feels like to be pregnant and to give birth and to nurse babies. And when the time is right, teach them more than just the birds and the bees. Teach them about inviting your husband into your garden and grazing does and kisses like fine wine. Listen, if the talk sounds just like mechanical engineering, you're not listening to how the Song of Solomon talks about it. Talk to your kids about sex and passion and marriage. And when you do, your conversations should be alive with life and joy and holiness. Teach your kids about passion and desire. And their reference to their love coming alive under an apple tree, which is also the same place where their husband was born, this is intentional. They are part of a family tree. God's wisdom says that love is much bigger than just us two. Love came before us and love will come after us. We're just one generation, just one branch of the family tree. I want to now talk specifically to those who've been married for a little bit longer. You have a responsibility to speak into the lives of younger couples. The younger couples in our church need you to be a part of our community. We need you to pass on what you have learned. Love is bigger than just us two. I want to share some specific challenges with those who have adult kids. All right, can we do something? Can you hear me? Uh, I'm just kind of curious. 
Raise your hand if you have a child that has graduated from high school uh, that you've raised a child. All right. Quite a lot. Good. Awesome. So here's specifically for you. The rest of us are going to listen in and learn down the road how we can uh, pass on what we have learned. Here's three promises I want you to make, especially those who have been married for a little bit longer and have raised uh, kids who are now older and out of the house. Promise number one, or maybe they move back into the house. Promise number one, I will speak the hard truths. I will speak the hard truths. In 8.4, our, our leading lady, the bride, she says this one more time. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Three times she tells uh, her bridesmaids, the younger ladies, don't awaken love until the proper time. She's speaking the hard truth. She says, I understand your desire is burning. Don't awaken it until the right time. Then let that flame grow wild. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 to 15 says this. I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Shame is not the solution. But to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul is writing to younger uh, Christ followers and saying, let me teach you how to live rightly. I'm not going to heap shame on you, but let me be your guide. Those of you who have been married a little bit longer, take this verse to heart. Say, I will speak the hard truths. Number two, second promise to make, I will forge the trail. I will forge the trail. I will go before the younger couples. We have married, we have engaged couples here. We have newlywed couples here. We have couples who have only married a couple years. You who have been married longer, you are forging the trail for us and those after you. We've talked about this, how in the Song of Solomon, our couple, their love matures. In 2.16, she says, my beloved is mine and I am his. It's possessive love. Then in 6.3, she says, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. There's this mutual submission going on. Then in 7.10, she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. It's a selfless love of giving. They're modeling, they're forging the trail of what it looks like to grow in maturity in your love, to grow in your selflessness. Paul goes on in, in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16, the next verse, says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Older couples, embrace that. Tell the young couples, be imitators of me. I will forge the trail and model maturing, selfless love. And number three, the promise to make, I will share biblical wisdom. I will share biblical wisdom. Paul goes on to write to a man who's mentoring Titus in Titus 2, verse 1 through 8. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men, older guys, this is for you, are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Older couples, we need you to share biblical wisdom. Teach younger people why God created sex. I want to run through these real fast. God gave sex for six reasons. Number one, for pleasure. That's what we've learned all Song of Solomon. Sex was created for pleasure. Number two, for procreation. Genesis 1.28, go, fill the earth. Number three, 
for protection against impure passion. Proverbs 5 tells us this, to delight in the wife of your youth so you're not led away into other cisterns, other women. Number four, God gave sex for intimacy. Genesis 4.1. Number five, for comfort. 2 Samuel 12.24. There are times when the two become one. Shelly, in, in her blog, To Love, Honor, and Vacuum, she shares a story, uh, and she said, I don't know if I was going to share this, where they actually lost a child who died. And that night, they were intimate. She said it wasn't about passion, it wasn't about pleasure, it was just about comfort. My husband and I, we needed to be one. We needed to be together. And there are times that sex is, is for comfort, to be there for each other. Number six, for oneness. To, to, the, the two become one. It's this mysterious union, Genesis 2.24. I will share biblical wisdom. Finally, I want to wrap up by sharing the fourth thing that love is. Love is an eternal jealous flame. Love is an eternal jealous flame. In 8 verse 6, she says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is, is fierce as the grave. In the ancient world, a person's seal was their guarantee of their identity, like a photo ID or their signature. And two images are given here, and both are images of permanence, death, and the very flame of God. And this is an example of a Hebrew poetic device called synonymous parallelism. Love and jealousy are parallel, and so are death and the grave. The second word makes the first one more engaging and concrete. So when we talk about love, we're talking about godly jealousy, the kind of single-minded loyalty a husband and wife should have towards each other. And when our poet is reaching for an image to describe how strong this concept of love is, death is the closest thing our author can think of. That's how permanent it is. Death is the first image. And the flame of the Lord is the second its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. Here we have two images here. We have fire and water. Which one normally wins when fire and water go up against each other? Water, yeah. But here, fire wins. Why? Because it's no ordinary fire. It's the very flame of the Lord. Did you know this is actually the only mention of God, of the Lord, in the whole Song of Solomon? And it's a, quite an awesome image given here. One that makes me think of two events found in the book of Exodus. The burning bush, which symbolizes God's covenant redemption, and the opening and closing of the Red Sea, which symbolizes God's deliverance. Here in the Song of Solomon, the image that it gives for love is like that of the burning bush at the bottom of the Red Sea. It's aflame even when the waters come crashing upon it. When millions of gallons of water close down upon it, the fire and the smoke reach up through the waters. That is an image of preserving permanence. Song and Solomon tells us that's what love is. Love is permanent like death and persevering like the very flame of God. Love is not about a compatibility. Love or, is not about a romance. Rather, it's an exclusive lifelong commitment. Love isn't some feeling you fall into. Love is a covenant commitment. When you think of love, I want you to think of that image of the burning bush that keeps burning even though the Red Sea closes down upon it. There's a second implication here that involves the gospel. There's a permanence and persevering quality to our covenant commitment that Christ makes to us, which is not just a death to his part, but actually overcomes death itself. I'm talking about the hope of the resurrection. Jesus says it in John 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
I'm talking about Ephesians 4, which talks about being sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption. I'm talking about Jesus, the one who died, the one who was raised, the inescapable love of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about a love that tribulation can't touch, that trials can't terminate, that persecution can't perish, that famine can't finish, that nakedness can't nullify, that danger can't demolish, that the sword can't sever, a love that even death can't destroy. If someone wants to stand up and say hallelujah, go ahead right now, okay? That's the kind of love that Jesus, our Savior, and our Redeemer has for us, amen? In Jesus, love has conquered death. And that when we pass through that doorway of death, we will experience love like we've never experienced it, full and complete love, love free of sin and sickness and temptations and trials. I want you to pursue the true flame of God. Pursue the one who loves us with an enduring flame that even though the Red Sea crashes upon it, his love cannot go out for us. That kind of love is the love that we want to model our relationships after. That even though hard times come, that even though it feels like the waters are crashing down upon us, we say we will persist. We will not give up. We will stay committed to each other because love is as permanent as death. Amen? I'm going to invite the band to come on up. As we have wrapped up this series, I want you to spend this week saying, what truths am I going to take? Maybe you are married. And you're going to say, you know what? We've learned some things. How are we going to work on building our friendship this week? How are we going to work on leaning on each other? Maybe you've been married for a, a, a while now. And you've never thought about the fact that love is bigger than us too, and that you have a responsibility to speak into younger generations. How are you going to do that? How are you going to invest in those who are coming after you? How are you going to forge the trail? How are you going to teach biblical wisdom? How are you going to model that kind of love? And if you are single, to pursue the kind of love that Christ wants for you, a love where you both can love and serve and honor Christ together, that you encourage one another to following Jesus. I'm going to pray, uh, and then uh, Bill, one of our government team members, is going to come up and just talk about offering real quick. Uh, would you stand with me? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your biblical wisdom that is found in the Song of Solomon. God, I thank you for what we've learned these last six weeks. May these truths go down deep into our hearts that we could learn to love like you love. God, that we would stay committed to you, that you would inspire us, that you would encourage us. God, that we would know that there's nothing that can separate us from your love. And God, in the same way, we ask that you would give us your strength to love the way that you love, even though we're imperfect and broken. God, to look for the good, to build our friendship, to pursue intimacy and passion with one another. God, I thank you. I thank you for your love. That you model that for us. Be with us now, this week. Be our strength. Be our hope. And let us know how we can serve and love others. In your name we pray. Amen.